HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Culture City, a for-purpose organization that provides a place of acceptance and support for all autism families. For more information, visit culturecity.org. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And uh, I have a very special guest today. Um, Sadly, he's not in the studio because it'd be so much more fun if he were. But um, I will be talking today with John Wilkes. John is also a host here on Heritage Radio Network, but he has many other hats. Um, He was, of course, raised in the English county of Shropshire. And you will forgive me if I burst into a sort of fruity, fake British accent at various points during the broadcast. I, I just won't be able to help myself, I can tell already. Um, anyway, he grew up on a farm in Shropshire, and uh, at around 20, he took over the farm, adapting to changing market trends. I'm reading his bio. Replacing older United Kingdom heritage animals with continental European breeds of cattle and sheep. That's a no-no. Um, and then uh, moving away from the land, he uh, moved to uh, Cornwall, a lovely area, and uh, launched a property development business, followed by owning and operating an award-winning fish and chips restaurant, a chip shop, John. Um, and then uh, most recently, he moved to the U.S. a few years ago, and um, and of course, that's where I met him, here, right here at Heritage, and through extensive U.S. travel and farm visits, has gained a unique perspective on the USA and European farming styles and food productions, uh, food production, um, and today his focus is consulting, speaking, writing, and broadcasting with his own radio show on Heritage Radio Network, which is known as The Whole Shebang. Um, he's also a board member of the Livestock Conservancy. Is that different from the American Livestock Breed Conservancy? We will talk about that. And most recently, John has launched a customized gourmet agri-travel tours to the United Kingdom. Um, And I'm expecting a freebie on that. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks a lot for joining me today. Thank you. Cool, blimey, Mary Poppins. You're doing a very good accent there. Stone me. You know what I mean? Anyway, yes. No, well, thank you for that um, flattering introduction. Oh, I did my best. Um, so, John, let's let's get busy with the actual show, and then I, I'm sure we will have yep. many digressions along the way. Um, yeah, digress but, is good. Yeah, digress is always good. And you were uh, in a previous life, obviously, like me. You seem to change careers about every ten years. I notice. Yes. Um, 
and we'll have to discuss that over a pint at some other date. But um, uh, you were uh, a sheep farmer in your seminal uh, formative years. And um, what tell us about what the differences that are between how animal agriculture works here versus how it works in the UK. Like, what are the well, biggest differences that you see? Well, I, I think um, <clears throat> on the sheep side of things, which, is, which was my forte, um, I used to run uh, several hundred breeding sheep uh, producing lambs for the eating market as opposed to the wool market. Uh, I think the, in relation to the sheep side of things, it, it, there's far more organization within the UK. We, we, it's a big job for us. We're a country 75 times smaller. We have 34 million sheep in the U.S., wow. a lot bigger, and you've only got 5.3 or whatever it is. So... For us, a big industry uh, and export-led, and so 30% of oil exports go go to Europe uh, and beyond. So for us, uh, the difference is, um, I think, in the UK, the sheep industry I can speak about, uh, there's a lot more um, people heading in the same direction. There's there's less sort of um, regional variations. People are uh, very focused on the products, on... um, whether you're farming in England, Scotland, Wales, or wherever, that you, the product you're producing, the lambs you're producing, are pretty much the same in relation to their to how they look, the shape of the animals, the meat they carry, and also the fat cover on them. Uh-huh. So uh, the industry in the UK, I, I mean, I'll, I'll get shot down by my mates at the American Sheep Industry Association, but uh, we're, we're very focused on on the quality of the product, and I think that was that's one of the. Um, the most striking differences that I found. Having said that, the American sheep industry is making great strides to, to improve on on the product. So, um, yeah, that's one of the big ones. So what is the difference? Is it the breed? The, is it the genetics or is it the feed or is it the style in which the animals are raised? Do you, I imagine the UK primarily pasture-based I don't know if yeah. that's true in the in the yeah, United yeah. States. I really know nothing about the sheep industry in this well, country because, I, I, we, as you we, point we out, it's get, quite small. Yeah, we don't want to get bogged down too much on the sheep thing. Basically, in the UK, <laughs> nearly, all, nearly all the little woolly darlings are, uh, are fed, uh, are grass-fed. And also, our breeds tend to be smaller and meatier. I mean, the average carcass size of a of a lamb in the US is something like 74 kilos. I mean, it's... 125 uh, pounds. Roughly, yeah, give I mean, or take. Uh, 135, yeah, 30, I guess. Yeah, sorry, 34 kilos, which oh. is like uh, times 2.2. So what's that? About 70, yeah, about 70 pounds. Right. In the UK, the average carcass is 50. Our animals tend hey. to be shorter, shorter and meatier. Uh-huh. That's the thing. And uh, not so big. And maybe that's why Americans don't really eat a lot of lamb, because most of the lamb we eat in this country is either New Zealand or Australian. Uh, not so much American lamb, although I know they're trying hard, struggling manfully uh, to yes. make inroads into the market. Um, but let's move on to, to like, when, when you've traveled around the United States looking at farms, what, what shocks you the most about how we raise livestock? And uh, is there any similarity between what you do in the U.K. or E.U.? Um, um, that is European Union, or is it all just a completely night and day difference? Well, I, I wouldn't say it, it's a shocking difference. I mean, you can sit, I find I can sit down with farmers where, wherever I am, you know, in Western Europe or here, and everybody, we're kind of sons of the soil. We, you have this close affinity. I, I think there is definitely the, um, there's a, a, a basic difference on meat production in that in the, in the U.S., um, you're far more likely to embrace, shall we say, uh, newer technologies, and, and you can say whether they're right or wrong. You know, steroids and hormones and the various things that can go into pig meat. Yeah. So 
they're, they're, that's uh, something which, you know, we don't go in for. Steroids and hormones are based uh, are banned in the UK. Uh-huh. Uh, well, all and, hormones and, and all steroids. Pretty well, yeah. You wow. Can't, we're, we're steroid and hormone free um, across all our meat sectors pretty well. Uh, yeah. But I, I mean, I'm, I'm not knocking, I'm not going to knock the American industry. The American farmers are, 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 are very efficient. And I think that we can learn, you know, I, I think it's about learning from both sides. I mean, we do get accused. I mean, just recently I was had a conversation with a senior bloke in the National Pork Producers Council who gave it me chapter and verse that Europe was basically sort of... Um, you know, sinking into a scene from Monty Python's uh, Search for the Holy Grail, where we all go around eating mud. And, uh, <laughs> and we're, yeah, we're, you know, we kind of flog each other with, with big sticks, and, and that's all we do. But it was a little more, obviously, politely put than that. I, I've never actually observed that in the... <laughs> yeah, I, well, where I live, it happens all the time. It's a, it's a national, it's a local sport, eat oh, the I mud. See. Flogging and eating mud. Oh, yeah, we have, we have, we have, yeah, in, in August, there is the Shropshire Mud Eating Competition. Oh, my God. I, I, is that part of the new uh, business of agro-tourism that you're um, launching? It's well, certainly a gourmet think, product, no question. I, about. Yeah, I mean, it's Shropshire expensive. Mud. It, it's expensive mud, and it's nice mud. But no, um, the, so, so really the, the idea that we, we are, we're lagging behind, and I mean, it, in, in relation to, the, to these sort of... Um, the GMO thing. I mean, in, in, in the UK, we, I think there is more movement towards it from the, from particularly from the uh, cropping side of things because of the, you know, the need to increase production and certain elements of GMO will allow you to cut costs and cut fertilizer and pesticide use. I can, well, I can see for that. a few years, yeah. Yeah. And, and then after that, the it's, you know, all hell breaks loose in your fields, as has yes. been uh, repeatedly pointed out, uh, to no yeah. avail. Um, well, I, I do want to take issue for a second. I, I read today at the uh, in the excellent um, Ag Insider, published by the Food and Environmental Reporting Network, uh, which has recently started charging an inordinate amount of money for their articles, which I, I feel sad about, but nevertheless, um, <laughs> I know, right? The nerve of them trying to make a living. Um, they uh, quoted a study from by the USDA that showed that the pork industry has consolidated over the last two decades, and there are virtually no, you know, comparatively speaking, almost no independent pork producers. It's all run by either contract growers uh, who are in, you know, in servitude to the big to the big producers, or it's just a little niche market like the Nyman Ranch folks. Um, yeah. You know, it's and 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 also the other thing about I wanted to say about the GMO that, that you referenced that it, you know, Europe has made a great point of not growing any GMO crops, and yet, as I learned recently in my research for my my weighty forty five thousand word tome, which makes um, me very excited. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can't wait to write it because right now I'm experiencing such intense panic that I I can I really can't uh, quite do almost anything. But um, strong drink. I, yeah, I think that must be it. I think yep. that's a really good idea, actually, John. Um, yep. But I was uh, I was uh, surprised to see, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in the second half of the show when we talked about the transatlantic uh, trade and. Um, Otherwise known as TTIP, Trade and Investment Partnership, um, but they they have no problem importing GMO crops to feed their livestock, but they don't actually want to grow them there. That's an aside. Anyway, let let us move on because I one of the things you and I have talked about quite often is um, you know sort of the groups like PETA and Humane Society of the United States and Mercy for Animals, and yeah. um, and they're you know they they publicize all these. Uh, 
animal cruelty issues. And I know that you have strong feelings about this. And don't hold back, please. Um, what what are the problems that you take most issue with in terms of like just ordinary? These are livestock practices. They've been going on forever. Yep. Um, so like, what's the big deal? And why are you trying to make the meat industry look bad? That I mean, that's essentially what I'm asking. I'm asking, what is it about those those organizations? Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I think I think um, without naming names, I I think that they they take very often isolated examples, which then are magnified into uh, to become major examples. I mean, if we take, for example, the Pitta, or is it Pata? I never. Pitta. That, that, that's it. Thank you. P E T A. Yeah. Don't mm-hmm. be disrespectful. Um, the, the shearing issue. There, there, there was indeed a fairly grim video which they launched on their on their website of conditions in, a, I think it was an Australian shearing shed, mm-hmm. and it's not pretty and it isn't good looking. Why wasn't it pretty? Because the, the, the kind of level of abuse and what the guys were doing to the sheep uh, as they were shearing them and using the handpiece, which, as you can imagine, is a, is a cutting tool. Yeah. And, and some of the stuff, it, it wasn't good. Um, but, okay, in any industry, you're going to have bad people and you're going to have good people. And the only hope is that, that there is an awful lot more good people than bad people. And at the end of the day, I think these organizations, these animal welfare organizations, um, there is a big goal, and their big goal is to basically stop, stop us eating animals. And whether it's wrapped up as animal welfare as a way of achieving it um, is a moot point. And, and that's why I find it a little bit uh, uh, rubs against the grain that um, often the other side isn't put because it doesn't go viral. You know, the chance for people to sort of reply to these um, viral vids, which... I gather these kids, uh, some of these videos that, uh, that are shot for these animal welfare folk, that you, you can earn about $800 a week plus expenses uh, to go and pretend to work for somebody for a week, and then you shoot a bit of film, and then you clear off. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, that's, I can understand that they do do a lot of good, and they highlight some inhumane practice, but I, I do feel that... Uh, for all the bad stuff that they feature, there is a huge amount. American livestock farmers, UK, European livestock farmers, are a good bunch of people. And, and if you maltreat your animals, you, you don't make any. You know, you don't make any money. You need to be efficient, and you need to look after your animals. And I think that that's one of my biggest bugbears. Yeah. No, I don't blame you. I mean, I, I think, uh, although I will take issue with the fact that um, that the whole goal is to make us stop eating meat. That may be true of PETA and Mercy for Animals, but the Humane Society of the United States and, and indeed around the world, uh, it's really about treating animals correctly. Um, so I don't I don't feel that they but should be tarred. Veg- how many vegetarians are at the head of these organizations, if you Google a bit? Well, I don't know, but I mean, what if I were a vegetarian? I mean, I, I don't think You'd that's relevant, vegetarian. actually. You'd be a good, now, I, am, I am not knocking vegetarianism. What I'm saying is the people that are, some of the people, inverted commas, that are, that are at the tips of these organizations are basically often vegetarian, vegan. I mean, it's like in the UK. Here's, here's a doozy. Okay, tell. We, we, we've got, uh, as you know, we've had a, a bit of a shakeup in the political system, and we've now got our shadow Government, which is the, these are the guys who aren't in power, the Labour Party, traditional party of the people. Yeah. So we've now got this radical Trotskyist guy who's taken over the helm as leader of the opposition. So he's, is that the guy who's being compared to Bernie Sanders? Um, I, uh, Colonel Sanders, maybe I don't. No. Know, but no. <laughs> um, um, but no, yes, possibly he's this kind What's of his you know, name? Marxist guy, and and he is he is brought in as his shadow agriculture, basically minister. A vegan. 
vegetarian. Yeah. And can you imagine if you're a UK farmer, the message that sends out to you when the head of your, you know, uh, shadow political party uh, elects a vegan as head of farming. Anyway, so it's not just here. That's what I'm trying to say is, is that this is, a, I think, there's a lot of this going on. Well, okay. I mean, I'll leave that for you. I guess what I was trying to get at is that a lot of times these um, videos that go up are showing things that many farmers think of as just standard operating procedure um, and that are not considered cruel, like tail docking, for instance. Um, You know, they cut off tails because... Uh, otherwise, animals might bite them off. Oh, yeah, and teeth grinding and all that. And, and all teeth those. grinding and yeah. debeaking and, you know, like some yeah. of those things, I guess, from the point of view of the farmer, make a lot of sense. And from the point of view of the consumer and or um, viewer, are yeah. seem like really abhorrent. Yeah, so, no, no, I, <clears throat> I agree entirely. I mean, I'm not here to defend Big Ag in any way, shape or form. But, mm-hmm. you know, the people have to be fed and... Um, you know, sometimes there's, a, there's quite a bit of inverted commas specialness that comes around, you know, sort of meat and how it's produced and people that are in a position to be able to afford to buy a, you know, a chicken that's a bit special or a piece of pork that's, that's, that's had a happy life running around a field. But a lot of people can't afford it. And I, and I know systems can change to um, um, basically produce animals like that. But when, I mean, if you travel in North Carolina and you go into, I've done it myself, you travel out to the coast, across eastern North Carolina, there is just mile upon mile of, um, you know, sheds producing pigs that head up in Walmart, you know, end up in Walmart. Yeah. To feed the folk. So it's, it's a tricky one. I don't think it's one that's ever going to get a really answered. And uh, I don't know. What do you think? What I think is that um, I think in particular pork production has, um, has gone over to the dark side in a way that I find quite alarming, as poultry production has been for quite some time. And I, I think there are much better ways of producing large volumes of animals uh, that do not include... Uh, in you know whether you want to call them inhumane practices or not, just the idea that an animal spends its entire life inside a shed um, yeah. is pretty disturbing. And yeah, yeah, and no, I, I can't yeah. imagine that it really like however carefully you um, doctor up its feed with whatever drugs or even whatever you know products you're using, whether it's coin or soy, alfalfa, you know yeah. all of the various uh, grains and cereals that go into livestock feed. However well you manage that, you are still not producing a pig that takes as good um, as a pig that goes up, grows up outside. No, I, I, I hear that entirely, and, and the reason I got in, I got into one with this guy who remained nameless. Who's probably oh no, do tell. Well, he's, he's I think he's the lead lobby. It's not Steve, Club. right? Steve Ooh. Gerritsen or whatever. No, Steven? no, no. Okay, no, this, this was another gentleman. Anyway, I, I, I was. It was about something else in relation to the BBC. You might have been interested in, in some stuff in, in relation to... BBC. It was a lobbying issue, right? Yeah, around the lobbying thing. So I got it, yeah. you know, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's... Uh, I, so I took the rant for quite a while, and I sat there <laughs> like a Brit, very stoic, stiff upper lip. Yeah. You know, I was, you know, um, you know, sort of I could hear Proper. the queen in the background singing. And uh, <laughs> so, but after a bit, what I pointed out to him is that, is that Chipotle have recently, you know, there was a bit of a carnitas famine in, in Chipotle oh, yeah. a few months ago. Yeah, up. I actually did a show about it, yeah. It, it went on for so, quite a while. Because they couldn't get enough uh, pork that met their fairly strict welfare standards. Right. Well, of late, well, fairly recently, Chipotle have just signed a multi-million dollar contract with a UK company based up on Humberside in the UK called um, you know, Caro Food Products, to basically who who have 
the pig production systems on a large scale that meet Chipotle's um, exacting standards. Really? So, of course, when I hit this gentleman with that, it's a great line. You'll love this. These guys, you know, 20 years on the hill, you know what I mean? And nothing phases me, yada, yada. So anyway, <laughs> I, I, I hit him with that. And in fairness, he only went quiet for three seconds. Yeah. Before, and I kid you not, he said to me, huh? Chipotle, they won't be here in 10 years' time. And I felt like going, ooh, that's a bit of a rash one. But anyway, there we go. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> so no, so, so there is, there is uh, you know, this group on Humberside have got a, they have farmer producers that supply them and they're able to produce the pork which uh, meets uh, Chipotle's needs, which, I mean, now uh, Neiman Ranch is, uh, you know, they're also supplying them. And I yeah. think that with their latest takeover, they probably will look, to, I would imagine, to ramp ramp up production maybe. indeed but, yeah the uh, whole point of getting involved with purdue which you know sent shivers of horror down the spine of every progressive foodie uh you know i hate that term every progressive food advocate foodish. around the country but the fact is is that purdue is going to offer them a lot in terms of research and development money um in terms of streamlining uh their distribution systems and so forth i mean i i listened to a <clears throat> very interesting um shall we say, sales pitch uh, on the part of both um, Jeff Trapesian, who's their VP of sales, and, uh, yeah. and also um, Jim Perdue, um, talking about what Purdue is going to offer Chipotle, uh, sorry, uh, Nyman Ranch, and yeah. um, how it's going to, you know, help them rather than harm them. And I'm, I'm hoping that other companies start f- feeling the feeling. I mean, your friend at the National Pork Producers Council um, is very similar to the guy that I had a run-in with. I was invited on a pork crawl last year, and um, I had the nerve to bring up to him the issue of antibiotics and livestock. And he, he literally told me that I was insane. Um, And that I didn't know what I was talking about, which, you know, may well be true. But I, you know, both of those may be true. But the fact is, is that he's he's sort of missing the point, which is what consumers want is what consumers are going to get eventually. And, um, you know, these people who ignore the the role of the consumer in how livestock is is raised and and processed in this country, I think do so at their peril. So I, I think the National Pork Producers Council is going to have a real comeuppance in the not-too-distant future. Um, we're, we're like already running out of time because I'm jabber, jabber, jabbering here. Let me ask you this, John, and nope. then we're, we're going to take a break, and then we'll talk about the TTIP, or TTIP, as it's called. And TPPP and PTT. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? Um uh, so you, you said earlier that you saw European Union practices beginning to align more with U.S. style, which is kind of alarming, uh, because European Union, U.K. in particular, is still pretty much all small freeholders who feed into a larger business, right, into a larger distribution. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the chicken job in the U.K., I mean, Cargill's are in now. Major, I mean, a, yeah. a, lot of friend, a lot of friends of mine are investing multi-million pounds into, you know, the, the, the chicken job. Into the big uh, chicken houses? Yep. Oh, it's huge. With my area in Shropshire, Herefordshire now, there are, um, you know, big, big, you know, multi-million uh, sheds going in. Wow. And they haven't oh, yeah. obviously read Chris Leonard's book, The Meat Racket, or they would know that that was oh. really a dumb investment. Most of them can't read. (laughs) Oh, they're not going to thank you for that, laddie. (laughs) No, they they will. They'll be fine. You've got to get your accent right a bit. Really? It's not that good? No, that that was more like sort of, you know, southern, above the estuary Essex, 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 estuary Essex, they call that. Oh, really? Because, you know, I I lived in London for a year, so that's pretty much what I base my, yeah. Yeah, I did. You can get therapy for that now. Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, how much do you think these big agribusinesses, I mean, having just told me that uh, that some of the big players are moving in and your people, your farm farm friends are are buying into the sort of the American system. How much do you think agribusiness is affecting your government policy versus uh, towards agriculture? Um, I think, well, I think we'll come on to it in a bit. But I mean, yeah. so policy wise, I think in relation to the TTIP, our government would love it. You know, they really? would, they, oh, yeah, they would welcome. Um, I was talking to a guy who's fairly high up in the UK meat export uh, side of things, and he said that you know the the basically Whitehall government are behind it, but it, it's again as we'll talk about it's it's the people and the image that they've got to try and sort out to nail nail a deal with these talks. So it's. I mean, a lot of my friends are farming incredibly uh, high tech with the arable, with the cropping side of things now. It's, it's all minimal cultivation, min till, yeah. and they are using biotechnology, and it's all satellite driven, and it, it's pretty spectacular now uh, that, that side of it. So, but they're not they they so production wise, they are they've always been good producers. And I think they're looking to try and um, take technology. Some bigger, big producers would like to take even more technology to to improve their improve their margins. Sure. Well, that makes sense. I mean, I, I have no quarrel with the technology, especially if it helps you retain soil and Indeed. do a better job. Um, let's take a quick break uh, right now for a sponsor drop, and then we'll be right back with John Wilkes, a former Shropshire lad. A Shropshire um, boy. A Shropshire boy. Yep. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk more about EU versus uh, American farming. Okay. Stay tuned. And this one is called Dues Paid by Rectech. This is HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We will be right back. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Culture City, a for-purpose organization that provides a place of acceptance and support for all autism families. This is Culture City's founder, Julian Maha. Culture City was really born out of uh, necessity. You know, it was born when my, uh, you know, currently six-year-old boy was diagnosed with autism. Uh, his name is Abram and he's non-verbal. And even though my wife and I were both physicians at the time, it was really hard for us to find any resources at that point to help him. All the other organizations out there that we know of, um, they do phenomenal work, but their main focus is basically finding a cure for autism. Our main focus is basically trying to prepare the community to accept not only children with autism, but their families as well. You know, in addition to that, we also want to provide help to these families in the here and now. You know, so tangible things like, you know, iPads for nonverbal kids, you know, financial scholarships, uh, therapy scholarships, 
you know, art camps and also some um, lecture series that can teach parents about, you know, dietary issues, um, you know, how to financially plan and things like that. For more information, visit culturecity.org. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and my guest today is John Wilkes. John is uh, something of an expert on um, farming, having grown up in a firm in Shropshire. Um, and um, we're talking about uh, the differences between um, European Union, United Kingdom agriculture, livestock agriculture, and American livestock agriculture. But we're just before the break, we were segueing into a more substantive discussion about a trade agreement that is in the process of negotiation. Now, I know most Americans <clears throat> were well aware of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and, and people had strong opinions about that. But I dare say that very few Americans have honed in on the TTIP, as it's called, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. Um, John actually was the one who clued me into this. I hadn't really read anything about it. I'd sort of seen it, but um, hadn't really um, checked it out. And uh, it was really interesting because um, some of the same objections that we had in the United States over the Trans-Pacific Partnership, particularly in regards to agriculture and, um, you know, lowering the bar and and, uh, undercutting uh, pricing and so forth, um, are exactly the things that Europeans are terribly worried about in terms of doing trade with the United States. Um, so um, why, why don't you go over some of the biggest issues that people seem to have with the TTIP from your side of the pond? Um, right. Because obviously our side of the pond is going to make out like a bandit here. Well, I, I think, I, you know... The... <laughs> As usual. Yeah. That, well, what... Well, you may say that. I couldn't possibly comment. Um, <laughs> that's a famous line from, what, from another TV thing. But anyway, uh, so, well, basically, in, in, on the good side, okay, plus minus, you, uh, in Europe, there's, you know, there'd be an extra, basically, 400,000 jobs being created. I mean, we're talking a big chunk of change here. But I mean, why, why did they say, because I actually watched a really interesting video with the trade minister, who's the chief negotiator for this. Of course, the name of his name eludes me. Um, but yes, he was bandying about this, you know, 400,000 plus jobs. Where, what, 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 why are those, why is that going to happen? What are these jobs about? Because well, it's going to be greater exports. Yeah, I mean they they're looking to cut they're looking to cut down, um, you know, to get rid of uh, tariffs and to make the you know to make trading and regulatory barriers to all kind of disappear or to be more manageable and to cut the paperwork for companies wanting to export. And I mean it's a big chunk of change. It's worth, I mean it, it would be worth I think it's worth about 119 billion to the EU annually mm-hmm. and about. I don't know, 95 billion to the U.S., and we're talking a big chunk. It's about half of the value of, of the TPP. So uh-huh. it's not, you know, it's not in the same ballpark in that sense, but it's a very close market, and it's a very easy market to, to get into. I, I think it, the, so the jobs would come in, uh, because agriculture, we're, we're, we're kind of talking farming here. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but I, you know, the, <laughs> it, this is across a whole sector of jobs. You know, you can, yeah, buy, a, you, you know, you can buy a Wheezy Volkswagen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but uh, don't have the, have the windows open when you drive it uh, now because you get gassed. Or just uh, keep an oxygen but, tank uh, in the car. The, the, the worry is, I think, that the perception is from some of the stronger countries. But it's Germany, basically, I think, that where the biggest worries are. The workers' rights, you know, U.S. wages are 20% less than EU workers yeah. and, and paying conditions and things like that. So, so that is a big driver for basically some states to, to, to be resisting TTIP, um, but food is is a, is very much in there. Uh, sure. And I think it's I think if they did do it, 
that imports from the US would be up 120% into the UK if it was done carte blanche across, you know, across the board now. So it's a big deal. Well, they're letting, <clears throat> I mean, for example, um, one of the things that seems to be really worrying people is um, importing food from the United States, which obviously would be a lot cheaper yep. um, than what you produce domestically, uh, thanks to our agribusiness here. Um, yep. and, and one of the things that uh, I, I noted with enthusiasm is that we're already shipping over, um, you know, our beef, which we you know, typically wash in chlorine, um, oh, yeah. which formerly was banned. In the EU, um, and I, and actually, I wouldn't be surprised if it was banned for other reasons. You know, for instance, drugs and hormones, which you guys don't use. Like, why would you want to accept a supply of products um, that undermine the quality of your food? That that to me was really one of the major issues. I was fascinated by that. Well, well, particularly as and one of the another one of the big things is the labeling issue. You know that, that yeah. they would need to. There's clear labeling. Well, let's face it. If you're if you're in Stuttgart in the old supermarket there, and you're seeing a big piece of red meat on a piece of styrofoam with U.S. on it, you, you know, and uh, it's clearly labeled with the greatest of respect. I don't think it, it would be. It, it's. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it would be very big on your shopping list. <laughs> Maybe you know? not, because I mean, yeah. you guys obviously have a country of origin labeling law, yeah. so, <clears> which so, we're so doing that. our best to gut here in this country, as I'm sure well, you know. Oh, I know. I, and, and, but this, and the thing about it is, I think food is about 3% of the whole deal. It's, you know, it's the actual food terms. So a lot of it yeah. is other stuff, software and, and, and all the rest of it. But it seems to me that the whole thing, they, Miami, the talks finished recently. Mm -hmm. The whole thing in Europe is it's kind of pissing people off because it all takes place in secret. Yes, so and that's the, what so made the, people mad about TPP as well. Yeah. So, so nobody knows. There is one place you can go to in Brussels at the EU Parliament where you can book three weeks in advance and you can have two hours to look at some kind of text that's come through. It's just done so people can't really see what is on the table, I suspect. And that's, one of, that's probably at, at the base of a lot of people's fears, the fears of the unknown in many ways, when a deal is done and no one's had a chance to perhaps have any input. Well, when I, I mean, if I were living in the European Union and I heard that suddenly we were going to be flooded with American cars, goods, food products, uh, crops, etc., um, I, I would be quaking in my boots. I mean, because I don't think your exports are going to come anywhere near to equaling our exports to you, if you know what I mean. Like, I think... You guys will be buyers of American products. We will not be buyers of European Union products, at least on the food side of it, because you just don't produce enough, right? Well, that's the thing. I, I mean, our area of expertise. So that seems very unfair. Well, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, the ban is actually lifted. The, technically, the ban's lifted for UK beef to come to the US. I think I'm right in saying it was lifted in December of last year, I think. Yeah, but but uh, so technically, uh, but no one's done it yet. The Irish were going to stick some beef into Boston for obvious reasons, right? Uh, but um, so the, the, the Irish, they were going to bring. But as it's all after the 17 years since the BSE thing, and they, they yeah. were lifting lifting the ban. So beef beef ain't going to happen because you. I mean, with respect, you've got great beef here, and it's it's something it's better. Can, well, yeah, you, you may say that again. I couldn't possibly comment. No, it is, John. I, it's juicy, I know. It's I know. great. I mean, you know, if you're going to buy beef, American beef is really pretty damn good. You may not like the way it's raised. You may not like oh, all no, the chemicals, but the reality is it's good. Freaking tasty. Yeah, it man. It goes down. It's lip-smacking good. It's lip-smacking. Um, mm -hmm. Lip-smacking. 
But no, the, the thing is, with, with the sheep side of things, I could see a market here for, for UK lamb to, um, to possibly take on. I mean, the Aussies basically supply, well, and certainly the New Zealanders to an extent. So yeah. half of the lamb, the, the 0.8 of a pound that's eaten here per head per person per year, half that's coming from Australia. Right. Um, and so I could see the UK being a, a very much a competitor for the Australian on, on the sheep side of things, mm-hmm. but certainly in relation to beef, it would be a it would be a tall order. You've got Scotch beef, which is a um, a very highly regarded uh, sort of branding uh, within the UK. Scotch beef is always considered to be very very good and highly expensive, and you you could get that. I suspect you'd see that in the home of the shiny apple or Whole Foods, as I like to call it. Wow. And, uh, you, you know, you, you could see some branding of some high end product coming in, but certainly right. not. I wouldn't say commercial stuff. Yeah, get closer to your phone, John. You're fading out. Um, <clears throat> okay. Uh, environmental goals were apparently gutted. Um, evidently, in the um, in whatever redacted version of this, uh, it was yep. noted by the Guardian um, that a lot of the environmental um, laws that are in place in the United Kingdom are, and in the the European Union uh, have basically been ignored in terms of um, <laughs> ignored or just simply dispensed with. Yeah. <clears throat> well, uh, you know that doesn't seem like a good thing. I mean. Well, they're laying the groundwork, aren't they? Let's let's be honest. If you think about it, it's not rocket science. If these talks are taking place and there could be issues in relation to GMOs and now... Because what they've done is... um, each country, each, 20, each of the 29 countries wanted the ability to be able to basically nix any GMOs being grown in, in their country. But yeah. what's happened is the European Parliament have turned around and they've issued a decree that that, that won't work, it's not feasible, and so therefore it's, that's, out of, that's out of play. So that, that's got people a bit concerned in that uh, the Parliament has, has, has voted, and they voted very heavily, like 500 to 30 against. That, that that should be the case, that there shouldn't be uh, each country. The Scots, bless them, fired it up in the summertime that they were going to start and become GM-free. Uh-huh. And other, other countries fell in line behind them, you know, uh, the, the usual suspects, to, to sort of, you know, jump jump on that back. Well, the French have never allowed GM crops to be grown in France, as far as I know, and I don't think German has, Germany well, has either. They, 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 they had a go once. The, um, what they did was, with the, with the GMO, there is in Europe, you see, there is a one crop can be grown in Europe, can be cultivated. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a May from Monsatan, uh, Santo. And, um, uh, <laughs> nice one. It, sorry, 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 Monsanto. <laughs> They're not listening, the don't worry. They, they don't listen. <laughs> they and haven't anyway, stuck any so pins in my booty maize. There's about, and this maize actually in Spain, you see, they grow about 340,000 acres of this, of, 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 of this BT corn. Crop. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's Mon 810, which is the only crop that is actually certified to be grown in Europe. And actually, the French, you see, between you and me, there's no French people listening, so we can talk. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they kind of allowed a, a, a modified potato, apparently, back in about 2008. No whatever. kidding. Yeah, kind of. And then it, they cut, well, we have got the potato. It is uh, GMO. Quick, take it away. No one will know. So anyway, they, they pulled it off and took it out. So... People have toyed with it, but I think there was such a stink kicked up in the late sort of 2002, 2007 and eight when they played with it that only Spain have actually, um, you know, you know, gone ahead and are still and are growing it to any. I think it's like 1.6 percent of the whole EU maize crop is actually. 
GM, and that's that's the crop in Spain. Wow, but I mean, at this point, the Spanish will probably do anything in order to generate yep. some income. I mean, yep. I yep. would I would be planting every inch of my country with you know whatever they told me to, as long as I yep. was able to issue a paycheck here and there. Um, one of the other things I read was uh, a campaign group says a report in a U.S. journal concerning these talks show that Europe is already capitulating to huge pressure from yeah. the U.S. to allow imports. Um, well, again, what other so. things were banned and are now being, besides our chlorine-washed beef loaded with uh, rectopamine and uh, hormones? What other stuff's banned? Yeah, I mean, food. Just let's, let's keep it with food products because that's, well, I mean, I mean, after all, it's Heritage uh, Radio but, Network. Yeah, your chicken is just, I mean, in relation to ag. Yeah. Uh, direct consumption stuff would be, yeah, your chicken, your beef, and your pork. That pretty well wraps it up, doesn't it? Yeah, pretty well does, right? That's, <laughs> but, but, Katie, what I want to talk about is GIs. GIs? Yes. What would that be? GIs, geographic indications or uh, geographic. It's this issue oh. of, and, it's, it, and this. Sure. You mean like uh, Appellation Contrôlé yeah. or, you know, like it, one of the, it, like, domain, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's hear about it. Well, here's the thing, and, and this is where the whole deal could founder on the altar of we don't want it, because basically geographic indications, GIs, and as you just talked about, it, it's what protects your cheese, your, your sure, your you cheeses, know, your, your, your wines, or your whatever. yeah, champagne, and of course, yeah, yeah, and, and there is actually a, a body in the United States called the Consortium for Common Food Names. Did you know that? I did not. I'm going to write and it down. They, and they and I had a chat with Sean and Morris, who's their, who's their senior director, and. They are very much involved at the moment because there's a feeling here that because, you know, Munster cheese is produced here or versions of uh, Parmigiano-Reggianos are produced produced here. So, you see, that won't be able to be sold into Europe as it stands because there's – and this this kind of idea of the GI is a really core – at the core of many people's objections to things because it's the kind of classic, oh, Americans coming over here and bringing their – Stuff that isn't actually from wherever it should be, and I right. think it, it's probably one of the, uh, the, the the biggest niggles. But I mean, it seems to me that 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 should just fall into. Uh, I mean, why can't you still export your product with the GI? Like, I don't get why that's going to be a sticking point. I mean, I can understand how an American uh, style, uh, an American version of Reggiano Parmigiano might not be what Reggiano Parmigiano is, but it's they're never going to label it Reggiano, right? Yeah, well, but the thing is, it, I, I suspect it's about confusion and the way things are, um, you know, and, and the way things are labeled and, you know, that your you know, average punter might get confused as to what they're buying. And, and I suspect it would, they would look on it as, as the thin end of the wedge and over right. time it would be eroded and, and, uh, and it, 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 would get, it would get worse. I know I was talking to a guy up in Wisconsin who's... Uh, He's a big cheesist, and yeah. he, he's uh, got a big cheese company. And he actually went over in 2011, and he he, he took his Pomiano uh, Reggiano way over there, and he and he kicked the Europeans' ass. Actually, he beat them at it, huh. and and he got he got sued by by the World Cheese Federation because he'd gone over and beaten them. It was great. Come on, yes, get out of here. He no, got he sued because he, he produced a parmesan, but maybe he was calling it the wrong name. I mean, I, I well, exactly. I, he he, what he they got sued. Oh, by. so he shouldn't be calling it parmesan or parmigiano. Well, exactly, and and I I think that's what it was. He went no, he went to the World Cheese Championships, and he got uh-huh. um, 
he had a big win, and uh, it, it all got pretty ugly, and there was threats of court cases, and goodness knows what. Wow, how interesting. That's, it, there's a lot to this GI stuff. I mean, I, I am personally very sympathetic with it. I mean, I think yep. that it's great to have that sort of patrimony. Um, when it comes to identifying food products that are traditional and go back hundreds, if not thousands of years and, yep. you know, to tip the hat towards the producer and the region and all that jazz. I would never want to give that up. I mean, no. I, you know, I, I hope that the Europeans stay firm on that. Um, there was another comment uh, that I believe was in The Guardian about this. Um, it said the TTIP is already letting big business take over our legislative system. It's about forcing governments to see the whole of society from the viewpoint of big business. Every yes. regulation which is important to the society, workers' Jeez. rights or environmental protection becomes simply an obstacle to profit. Here's um, the kicker. Here's the kicker. ISDS. What that? ISDS is Investor State dispute settlement and this is built oh into yeah the i read about that oh this is the doozy so this is where if you're a big company who remain nameless and you are perceived to be slighted by a country in europe that you want you can't you know develop your business there successfully right. and yada 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 you don't go to you so you're not going to go before a court of law a legal court on this you're going to go in front of a panel huh who will decide if that country has been unfair, that government has been unfair in discriminating against you and your product, and give you a big chunk of cash. Wow. Oh, yeah. And, that's, and there's, a, there's a lot of, I think, you know, that's one of the also, um, that's getting a lot of alarm bells ringing in that this idea of uh, big companies will get, I mean, I think that's what a lot of people with the TPP talks were against as well. Yes. The idea that, that, that corporate takeover of trade, you know, they become the regulators and they, and they set the parameters. And I think right. that's a, a big issue, possibly. I think that's a huge issue. I mean, to me, that's that's sort of like the issue, actually, um, is, you know, that, that they're sort of creating almost like a, um, I mean, you referred to a shadow government and talking about your, um, what do you call it, not your not your dominant party, but your... Yeah, yeah, the, the, the party in waiting, they'd like to call it. Oh, is that right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to me, that's what's happening is that there is like this other body that is being formed with all of these yep. trade partnerships where, uh, you know, normal channels, normal judicial channels are going to be basically bypassed in favor of these, you know, sort of um, underground uh, panels as you discuss them. Um, there was one more thing we have to go. Oh, actually, we, we have to go. Um, we have to we wrap gotta up. we got to go? Yeah, I know. This oh, sucks. Darn. This is, this is really fun, talked, John. As we haven't I, even I, talked about hot dogs yet. I know. Or bullfighting. I really wanted to get that proprietary oh. information about the bull breeding subsidies. Bull breeding. I can talk to you again about bull breeding. Okay, well, we'll do that. We'll, let's do that. Let's, let's actually write an article or something about it. I think that's a fascinating subject. I mean, I, grew, I, I lived in Spain when I was a little girl, and we went to the bullfights yeah. a lot, and I thought they were just fabulous. And when I went came home, my mother made my brother and me capes and gave us yeah. a whole rig you know we had the hats and everything and now i just think oh my god it's a moot point and a big one but uh i i i make no comment other than that i'd like to make a comment but we'll do it again okay we'll do it again um so do you have any first of all what is your twitter feed dude do you have a twitter handle not particularly huge i'm a luddite and, uh, so you don't uh, have I, that. You don't do I, Twitter. I, I have a I, I have a Twitter feed which I can give to you, and you and you can put up on the page for anything. Well, I'm that. gonna I'm gonna publicize it right now. What is your Twitter handle? It's secret, and I'll tell you later. <laughs> okay. All right then. Well, um, and do you have anything else you want to promote? Are are you? Is it the is the livestock conservancy the same yes. thing as the American yes, livestock breed is, conservancy? Big up livestock conservancy. Yes. Big up. 
Okay. Big up. Yes, that's popular youth speak. Big up. Yeah, um, I, I don't the, speak that way. It's but. In, yeah, okay, nor me. In Santa Rosa, this uh, coming week uh, is the Livestock Conservancy Conference where we're heading out to the West Coast. And it's a great organization, which I uh, am proudly uh, on the board of. And it was a big honor when they asked me as a Brit to come on the board. Awesome. The yeah. So, that, yeah, we've yeah. got that inside. Even Rose though you now. abandoned those heritage breeds while you were a farming well, lad. Exactly. Big oh, my God. I well, hope they know not? that. Um, uh, well, John, we have to wrap it up because now I have right. to say the various things like who my sponsor was and, and my okay. music and stuff. But um, I thank you so much for joining me. I hope, we'll, I hope we can do this again. We, we will. We'll have yeah, a Yeah, I, I like having these European versus American because, I, you know, globalization of food trade is, is going to be an increasingly large part of all of our lives. So it's, it's always good to get somebody else. Anyway, um, my producer today, of course, was myself, um, my engineer, the, the one and only. Only Jack Inslee, my my most beloved pal. Legend, legendary. The legendary, legendary Jack and just absolutely the one yeah. and only. Um, my break music today was provided by Rec Tech, um, also a favorite. And uh, the theme song to my show is Dead Stars. My sponsor was Culture City. Um, next up, you're going to be listening to a short clip of A Taste of the Past by the uh, legendary Linda Palaccio. Um, but I also want to say, um, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And remember that if you liked what you heard and want to hear more, tell your friends to subscribe to this show and all of the other shows on iTunes um, or on Stitcher. Is that no longer part of our thing? I don't see it. Uh, anyway, and feel free to get in touch with us at heritageradionetwork.org. Um, you can go to my show page because I have one um, and you can put comments on it. You can also um, go to my Facebook page, which is What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights with Katie Kiefer. And you can tweet to me. I've never yet revealed my Twitter handle on my show and it's long past time. It is K at K Corrigan K. Think of wrong way Corrigan. A tip of the hat to me Irish roots. Um, and I thank you once again, John, for being on the show. And uh, we'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for listening. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It wasn't really until the 1960s, particularly the 1970s, that they took off. And I have a theory about this, which has to do with the fact that donuts do well in times of economic crisis. Mm. So that if you look at the Depression, donuts were big. If you look at the 1970s, donuts were big. And if you look at the first decade or last maybe 10 years when we've been in this economic crisis, right? Once again, donuts become huge. In episode 178 of A Taste of the Past, Michael Crondall talks about how and why the donut has remained a top-selling dessert, even in tough economic times. So they take off in the 1970s, and Dunkin' Donuts becomes by far, by far, by far the biggest chain. Uh, well, and then, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, suddenly, I don't know, you know, everything becomes the new darling. You know, the, the cupcake became the new craze, much attributed possibly to, you know, the television show Sex and the City. Oh, absolutely. Trends. I think that's right. And then Donuts suddenly, you know, they, they never went away. They've always been around. But all of a sudden, they became this new craze with odd flavors, exotic flavors, any flavor you can imagine. And donut shops, fancy donut shops, if you will, popping up all over the place, small ones. You know, artisanal donuts. Once yeah, again. I, I, it's it's a what 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 do you attribute to that? Well, I, I do think that part of it has to do with the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. I do think that has something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Donuts, like a cupcake, is an affordable treat. But I think there's something else about donuts. Donuts have a kind of a street cred that cupcakes will never have. If you want to learn more about the history of food, check out A Taste of the Past every Thursday at noon, and available all times at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. 
Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported nonprofit organization broadcasting over 30 live shows a week. To learn more and donate, visit our website or connect with us on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram for more. Thanks for listening.